Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. For some time, Milk had been the victim of a number of assassination threats. In fact, he recorded a tape over a year ago, a tape he wanted played if he was killed while in office. Can I prevent some people from getting angry and frustrated and mad, but I hope they would take that anger and frustration and madness instead of demonstrating or anything of that type. I would hope they take it to positive, and I would hope five, ten, a hundred thousand would rise. As acting mayor, I order an immediate state of mourning in our city for the loss of our mayor and our supervisor. Why do you think it was Harvey Mill? A controversy 
type of lifestyle. Supervisor Feinstein, you supported White's reappointment to the board. He went through a few months of very hard financial problems, uh, family problems with a new baby and um, mortgages. Is there any connection between what the People's Temple and what happened today in City Hall? The only thing you could say is that a climate of violence, the acceptance of people having handguns. Change the police budget to a sense of priorities. If they if they stop this whole thing that sex is the, is the reason for crime and take that uh, that money and those people, so the people are organizing because the, the police won't do it. Incredibly, the suspect was former supervisor Dan White. An ashen-faced supervisor's board president, Diane Feinstein, made the news official. The city's emotional reconstruction can only come about through a spirit of cooperation and accommodation. Remorse must not beget revenge. Are there any leaders right now in the gay community? You also have a certain leadership role, and perhaps also on a national level in the gay movement. How do you feel about those respective roles? I do not in any sense see myself as inheriting that particular role. I do see myself as inheriting a responsibility to see that Harvey's work as a national leader continues. I think that you're going to finally find some of the complacency that's so inherent in the gay community. I don't think you're going to find complacency anymore. So you think the tenor of the gay community is going to change? It's changed already. Toward? Towards violence. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Episode 3, White Knight. In the last episode, we followed Harry Britt from Texas to the teeming gay mecca of San Francisco, where he finally cracked open the closet door. He found a home at a bar called Toad Hall and remade himself into a Castro clone. Then one day, he wandered into Harvey Milk's camera shop and found himself in a whirlwind of volunteers, stuffing leaflets, calling voters, running around town posting flyers, while Harvey stares at precinct maps and barks out orders. Now it's the day after Harvey's assassination, and his closest friends are gathered in Harry's apartment. The night before, Harry told the grieving crowd at City Hall that something very special was going to happen in the city, and it would have Harvey Milk's name on it. But if that's going to happen... Harvey's friends will have to convince the city's new mayor, Diane Feinstein, to appoint someone who will carry forward Harvey's vision. Meanwhile, on the street, gay grief is turning into fury. At a press conference, gay reporter Randy Schultz asks acting Mayor Feinstein a question. In the gay community for weeks, uh, people have been saying that there'd be a riot if there was a manslaughter uh, conviction. I... With all the resources in your office, politically, and in the police department, why, how could it be that you, nobody ever heard about it uh, from your People have been talking about it for a long time. Well, uh, that there was going to be a riot. That people were using uh, riot. I know there were flyers that regardless of to be a riot. People have been talking about, I mean, there were flyers out. Right, that's not true. Well, it is, too. Oh, crap. Let's not argue about it. I think he answered the question. Lieutenant, how are you saying that? The Oscar-winning film Milk 
opens with Sean Penn as Harvey, sitting alone in his kitchen, talking into a tape recorder. Here's the actual recording in Harvey's own voice. This is Harvey Milk speaking from my camera store on the evening of Friday, November 18th. This is tape number two. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. Um, I've given some strong and long and considerable thought to this. Knowing that uh, I could be assassinated at any moment or any time, I feel it's important that some people know my thoughts. Uh, And so the following of my thoughts, my wishes, my desires, whatever. And uh, I'd like to pass them on and have them played for the appropriate people. The first and most obvious and most concerned is that if I was to be shot and killed, the mayor has the power, George Moscone, of appointing my successor on the Board of Supervisors. I know that there will be great pressures on him and lobbying on him from various factors, and so I would like to have him know what my thoughts are. And I would hope he would then give strong consideration and only strong consideration to people who came from the movement. And I would suggest and urge and hope that the mayor would understand that distinction and that he would appoint to somebody somebody to my position who also came from the movement rather than used the movement or never understood the movement. Then he names his choices for successor. His old friend, Frank Robinson, the novelist who wrote Towering Inferno. Frank is the one who, almost daily, we had conversations on issues and points and philosophies. And so he knows my thinking as well. Bob Ross, the owner of the Bay Area Reporter newspaper. Also has that quality of getting along with a lot more people than I can, which is going to be needed. And Bob is a strong person who will not bend, and that's vital. Gay people, the first few gay people, must be strong. That doesn't mean obstinate or uncompromising, but must be strong. Cannot have a weak person, the professional lawyers. Harry Britt is his third choice. The third choice I would have would be Harry Britt, who most people don't know, but I've watched Harry, and Harry's been in three, involved with three campaigns, and Harry knows where I am, and I've watched Harry grow and grow and grow and become more articulate and more articulate, and some people may find him wrong because he is somewhat emotional, but by God, what fabulous emotions. And a very, very dedicated and strong person. One who will not be pushed around. One who understands where the movement is and where it must go. And someday will be there anyhow. Then, his young aide, Anne Cronenberg. And a fourth possibility is a person who is younger, newer, and learning every day. 
That's the woman who put my campaign together in Cronenberg. Who is strong. Who understands and, as I said, learns fast and that's vital. It would add a spirit, being a gay woman, that the others cannot add. And I think that would be an outstanding choice. Robinson demurs, and Harvey's friends consider Bob Ross too conservative. Harry Britt, well, few really know the unassuming Texan. When Harry hears his name, he thinks to himself, no way in hell. With his awkwardness and social anxiety, he could never fill Harvey's shoes, especially when Harvey wore clown shoes, which he actually did one day, posing for pictures riding a cable car. This is not Harry's style. So the group comes together around Anne. She's just 25 years old, but as Harvey's campaign manager and aide, she had brought order to his chaos. There's a famous picture of Anne on her motorcycle with Harvey behind her, pulling up to the camera shop on the night of his election. The thought of a young lesbian who wears a leather jacket taking Harvey's place is exciting. For Diane Feinstein, the very thought of it is deeply disturbing. Would Anne wear leather to the Board of Supervisors' meetings? Seriously, she asked her this in a meeting. Weeks pass. In early December, Feinstein interviews Harry, and he makes it clear he supports Anne. But by the end of the month, Harry and others conclude that it's not going to happen. And they begin to get worried. More than 50 people have submitted their names for consideration. What if the mayor appoints a member of the Toklas Club? Or a straight person? What happens next will divide a grieving community and put an awkward man in an awkward position. Um, I probably said, I must have said something nice about Anna, because by then we had decided, I'm sure that's who I it was to be. carried petitions for her. Working with Carol, our contact yeah. with Harvey's office was with Anne, um, and being a dutiful yeah. feminist, gay well, I guy, I naturally appreciate you doing that. We, being at the age of 24, so idealistically. I dedicated a whole closet in my house to storing those petitions and some of the post things that went in the windows. Yeah. Uh, um, at, there was a 30 day requirement that you had to live in the district for 30 days in order to be a district. Uh, Harvey was killed at the end of November. So Anne did not live in the district. We moved her into Harvey's place within 48 hours of his assassination. Just gotta go there, Anne. So we did not want this to be, we did not want her to appoint one of Harvey's enemies. And it's greatly to her credit that she didn't. So I know she wanted to. I know she very much wanted to, out of personal friendship for these people and trusting them. She wasn't going to trust anybody that had anything to do with Harvey Milk. She didn't trust Harvey Milk, I dare say. I never talked to her about it, but she shouldn't have. And uh, so she was in, uh, you know, new waters here. Uh, 
it was like asking her to pick the president of ACT UP, you know, he just couldn't quite do that. And you knew by December that she wasn't going to appoint Anne? The people who knew City Hall best, people like Dickie Pavich, were the most skeptical that she would appoint Anne, because they knew that she knew Anne very, 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 very well. I remember the setup. Why wouldn't she love Anne? I, I, I just remember Anne Anne's was very personable. Anne was, Anne was a, an extremely likable person, uh -huh. I'm sure, in her interactions with Supervisor Feinstein, that she was very respectful. Anne was not Diane's kind of lesbian. She didn't dress quite right. She was a little butch, maybe. She a little loud. She was very assertive. She was a strong woman. And none of, all of those things to me are good things. But Diane was Pacific Heights and in propriety and dignity, and that just wasn't what you thought of when you thought of Anne Cronenberg. Also, she was very young. She was about 25, something like that. And that, that was troubling to her, um, as it would be to a lot of people. There, there was a greatly untested quality about Anne. And um, I think the fact that she wore Levi's was a problem. Uh, I, on the other hand, was older, quiet. Now, you know, I was more her kind of a guy as far as she could tell from the surface in the process of changing. Um, and um, so Diane calls me into her office sometime around Christmas time and wants to know how I would feel and how Harvey's people would feel if she appointed a, an interim supervisor who would agree not to run re-election in the fall of the next year. And I told her I wouldn't like that. You know, Harvey didn't give his life for an interim anything. <laughs> you know? And she told me who it was going to be. She said she found someone that she really wanted to appoint. And how would I feel? And I've never told anybody who that person was, and I'm not going to now because I don't want to I don't know if he or she knows. Uh, but it was a totally unacceptable choice. I mean, way, way worse than David Scott. Um, and uh, it was at that point that, that I realized that I had no choice but to take it myself. In the meeting? In the meeting. Yeah. In the meeting at the time. Because I didn't know what the meeting was going to be about. I, you know. I, yeah, and because uh, we had, and she hadn't said anything about Anne Cronenberg yet. I was hoping the meeting would say, "Okay, I'll point Diane if you'll get her to wear a nice dress or something like that." She, so in the meeting itself, uh, I said, "That's just not." I could not live with myself. I didn't say this, you know. I realized I could not live with myself the rest of my life, knowing that I was the one person who could prevent that from happening.
and that Harvey would, that when I got to hell, he'd give me a really hard time about it. So I said, before you do that, let's talk about me. And she was obviously very relieved. So one of the things she liked about me was that I didn't, that every other gay person in the world was trying to get the job, and I wasn't. So she didn't read me as an ambitious, uh, self-focusing person. And so we talked. And I said, I just said it better now that, you know, we all felt a responsibility to Harvey that we couldn't let his work fall by the wayside. And it appeared to me that unless she was willing to say that she would do it Cronenberg, and she never would say that, she never said it in public, because she didn't have to. And it hurt me, because there was still a lot of women's anger that the gay people, the gay men, that if we just held out, she would have appointed Anne, which I'm quite sure is not true. And besides, we couldn't hold out anyway. Uh, so I said, let's talk, I, and we talked, and I don't remember I basically said that I'm willing, I'm willing to do it if that's, you know, if this is the choice. And she was very, I was clearly very relieved. Not, not in a bad way, but just because I think I was offering her a way to honor Harvey, to honor his, his wishes that she really wanted, just in terms of her own sense of right and wrong. It wasn't about politics. She never, she did not talk to me about politics. I was afraid she would. <laughs> I told her that I was Harvey's guy and that I, you know, I, I was going, my politics were like Harvey's. I, I remember telling her that. But I, I, she did not say, you know, how do you feel about downtown growth or rent control or she didn't ask those questions. I was still wavering even after I said that thing to Diane because again it wasn't a planned thing and I went home and I thought what did I just do? And I did talk to Pat and she said, she said, Harry, you, you've got to make a five-year commitment that, you know, for the next five years this is your life and beyond that you, you, you're, not, you're not signing off on a lifetime of stuff you hate to do. And I took that very seriously. And I kind of, in my own mind, made a five-year commitment that would involve getting elected and serving a full, you know, being able to sort of move the next person up. And then I still told very few people. I told Chris Berry and, and Tim Wolford and, you know, people like that. But I did not, it wasn't official yet. It was, this vetting was going on. And on New Year's Eve, I got the call late at night on New Year's Eve. You know, people get drunk on New Year's Eve and do all kinds of crazy things, but I don't think she was drunk. <laughs> no, but she was probably doing something that, that, if, that if she ever wished she could drink, she probably wished then she could have had a drink before she made that call. I think it was maybe more of an, uh, like the Chinese New Year thing, the Chinese, you don't take any debts into the new year kind of thing, or, you know, kind of a... And it was probably also a final test. An ending of, If you were up and sober... No. I was so embarrassed to be up and sober. 
you know, on New Year's Eve, if you're if you're sitting home alone, you you put a message on your scene saying, "Hey, don't call me till late tomorrow afternoon because I know I won't be up." And then you don't answer the phone. I didn't do that. Could have changed history. <laughs> and yes, she wanted some. Uh, she wanted something from my file, and she said, "Can you can we meet in the morning? And will you bring me some things from my father file?" tomorrow morning, called New Year's Day. And so, bright and early on New Year's Day, Harry arrives at the door of the mayor's elegant Pacific Heights home. Diane makes scrambled eggs and small talk and lays out next steps. It's the beginning of a long and complicated relationship. When word gets out, Anne Cronenberg and her supporters feel deeply betrayed. I was one of them. I carried petitions for Anne, urging the mayor to appoint her. I was not a fan of Harry Britt. It will take years for Harry to mend the fences. Some women never forgive him. But it was Cleve Jones, who I knew from the No on Six campaign, who changed my mind. One night, I ran into him at a South of Market bar called The Stud. I started complaining that Harry was a poor substitute for Harvey. He had no charisma. He blinked a lot. So what if he blinks a lot, Cleve snapped back. He represents our community now. We need to support him. A few months later, Harry's actions on the street will remove my doubts about his ability to lead. Harry G. Britt, Jr., is sworn into office on January 10, 1979. What makes the day memorable for Harry is the presence of his mother and father, the oil worker and weightlifter, who came to San Francisco to see their son become an elected official. I was sworn in, and uh, I did not give a very good speech, and it was in large part because I was so intimidated by the women's reaction. My dad came out from Texas to see me, to see the event, and that was nice. Mm. He fell in love with Diane Feinstein, flirted with her a lot. Oh, my gosh. I could, I could have done without that. <laughs> but I couldn't have, because the thought of that to me is just too good, but I'm sure for yourself no, it, it was rather that like, no, you didn't Dad, dad is that. from a small town in Georgia, and yeah, big football player kind of guy, and Diane is... They, no, they just, yeah, exactly, exactly. Wasn't no, good, it wasn't going to go anywhere. Wasn't a good couple. Yeah, she was. <laughs> but uh, but she probably liked the attention, and I know he just adored her. Um, you know, he goes home. He you know sends me a nice note. And he says, "Boy, I really liked your mayor." I knew that's what he really liked. Was like he thinks she'll invite me back to see her. So I was sworn in, and then there was the thing about with the. With the cops, you know, the, thing, the, the first cop, the vote, one of the first votes, or the, the first, first the vote. first vote. They had been holding off the vote, waiting for somebody to yeah. get appointed. This is the Gay Life on KSAN. Good morning, I'm Randy Alfred. You have an important vote coming up on the settlement of the Police Officers Association Officers for Justice suit. Have you reached any decision on that, or what kind of thoughts do you have about it as of now? Okay, well, on that issue, as on every other issue that's coming before the board on Monday, I'm in the process of learning. 
I have already met with the Officers for Justice. I will be meeting before the time this broadcast goes on the air with some friends of mine in the police department, uh, with the mayor, with the city attorney's office, and whoever else I can find to get all the information around the police settlement. I know, I know enough to know now that it's a real bad situation. Uh, I will not be casting any votes that are racist or anti-gay during the time that I'm the, on the Board of Supervisors and the mayor does not expect me to. Uh, there are real problems about working out a settlement that's, that's acceptable to everybody. My real hope at this moment in time is that we will be able to work out something that will be acceptable to the parties involved. It's a vote on a long-standing controversy surrounding the San Francisco Police Department, with the shadow of Dan White hanging over it. The graffiti spray-painted on the sidewalk on Castro Street asked the question on all of our minds in the weeks following the assassinations. Who killed Harvey Milk? Was it just Dan White's murderous rage? There are too many powerful interests that are quite happy to have Harvey out of the way not the least of which is the police union. Oh, there are the usual explanations. Dan White is a bad apple, they say. He went rogue. It's a senseless tragedy. Well, as the Black Lives Matter movement declares, we call bullshit. The problem is systemic racism and homophobia. San Francisco's white police force has been brutalizing people of color and queers and discriminating against them in their ranks for decades. And now, in the weeks after the assassination, it's getting worse. Police are beating gay men outside gay bars. Off-duty cops raid Peg's Place, a lesbian bar in a quiet neighborhood. The patrons fight back with pool sticks. Roving gangs are assaulting gay men in the Castro. There was a feeling at that time there was a definite uptick in police harassment and other street. See, I, I can't compare before and after because mm -hmm. I wasn't there before. There was police harassment. I mean, okay, you've got to stop me if I've told you before. The thing that surprised me the most as a constituent service provider was the very large number of calls we got about police problems from gay people but not just from gay people uh, my my district went over to church street but you know we got calls from people in the mission and carol silver was their supervisor so we and we could we talked but there was i was amazed at the number of complaints we got about the cops. And in January, I don't know the date, but very early in January, I was invited to speak at the uh, Golden Gate Business Association, which was a fairly new organization at the time. Big dinner. And I only had like two or three minutes. And so I said, look, the one thing I want to say to you is that we really have to work together because we're going to be having a lot of problems with the police. That was my sole message to GGBA. What I didn't realize was that the police chief was at the dinner. <laughs> and he got up and challenged me. 
and uh, it was a quick little thing. But the people in the room pretty much decided with the police chief. Uh, GGBA was one of the more conservative yeah. gay groups, yeah. and they didn't know who I was, and they loved having the police chief at their dinner because that hadn't happened, I think, with other police chiefs. And, you know, that 70s mentality of what we want is approval from white, our straight masters yeah. was still very strong in a lot of places, and uh, they weren't hearing it from me. In fact, Chief Gain bellows. There has been no change in policy. Next time you hear of a case of police brutality against a gay, call me. Anytime. Now put up or shut up. The crowd of 350 queer business people bursts into applause. The day before, Harry had cast his first vote. The issue is a proposed settlement of a lawsuit that had been brought against the San Francisco Police Department by black, Chinese, and female officers. They called themselves the Officers for Justice. The suit charges the SFPD with rampant discrimination in hiring and promotion. The Police Officers Association, the police union, had been fighting it for years. With Dan White's vote, they blocked the settlement negotiated by Mayor Moscone that would have provided damages to officers who had been discriminated against and sets targets for integrating the police department. The trial began in early November 1978, just two weeks before the assassinations. But now, Diane Feinstein is mayor, and she's a law and order politician. She has a thing about cops especially the silver-haired types, the captains and chiefs. She has a police radio in her car and a pistol in her purse. On more than one occasion, while she's being driven around the city, she pulls over to stop a crime in progress. She has a photograph of herself on her desk wearing a neatly tailored police uniform. So no one is surprised when she negotiates a settlement much less favorable to the officers for justice. They protest outside her office. But the police union endorses the deal. Oh, and there's that thing about federal funds. Because the judge has already found the police department guilty of violating federal civil rights law because of its racially biased tests, the feds are threatening to withhold $60 million of funding from the city. So let's just say there's a lot of pressure to get it over with. After some last-minute concessions to the officers for justice, Feinstein submits her proposal to the Board of Supervisors on January 22nd. Harry is in a quandary. Harvey had voted for a much better settlement the year before, and Harry knows that this one isn't fair. And uh, Diane expected me to vote for it because I had just been appointed by her, and that's not a totally unrealistic expectation. She could not have understood that it was completely impossible for me to vote against, you know, to define myself that way the first day. I would never have recovered from that. Besides, I didn't, you know, I, my heart didn't want to vote for it either, but I, you know, but I would have liked to accommodate the mayor who had just appointed me. Harry is afraid that being labeled disloyal at the beginning of his career would haunt him. So he sets aside his misgivings and votes for the mayor's proposal. It was going to pass anyway, 
with or without his vote. The POA did not want, you know, black officers to be able to come to work and, and say, we beat you. It was all about really white supremacy in the sense of, you know, we're in, we're in charge here. It wasn't about the, the content of the settlement. So no, there were all kinds of problems with the police department when I became a supervisor. But if there was any doubt about Harry's independence, he removes it the next night when he stands up in front of the Gay Business Association and announces that police brutality against gays has increased since Diane Feinstein became mayor. It's just the beginning of Harry's problems with the police. A significant amount of the motivation was that uh, Harvey Milk was gay and that that's why he was killed. I don't believe that any, anybody in their right mind could say that he was shot simply because he opposed the reappointment of Dan White. And I'm also scared about the reaction. I don't know what the reaction could be, and I think that we could expect anything from this moment on for the next few days. The cops had been waging a culture war against queers for decades. They raided our bars. They entrapped us. Back in the 1950s, if you were arrested at a queer bar, they published your name and photo in the newspaper. Even in the 1970s, you could get kidnapped by cops, driven to a remote park, and beaten to a bloody pulp. And when gays got attacked by others, the cops stood by. Dan White was the police union's poster boy. When he launched his campaign for supervisor, he declared, I am not going to be forced out of San Francisco by splinter groups of radicals, social deviants, and incorrigibles. In the weeks before the assassinations, stories go, pictures of Mayor Moscone in crosshairs were taped on locker room doors in police stations. Within the police ranks, a shadowy group called Cops for Christ was publishing a newsletter. And now, after the murders, there are reports that the cops are wearing free Dan White t-shirts under their uniforms and raising money for his defense. On May 1, 1979, Dan White goes on trial for two charges of first-degree murder. The alarm bells start ringing when White's attorney asks potential jurors if they have ever supported controversial causes you know, like homosexual rights, and dismissing them if they say yes. White is portrayed as an earnest and naive police officer turned politician, betrayed by city hall power brokers. And then there are the Twinkies. Junk food, the jurors are told, made him crazy. The defense rests its case 10 days later. The next day, in the Castro, a gay man is posting flyers outside the Elephant Walk bar when a cop tries to arrest him. Within minutes, hundreds of gay men surround them. When five squad cars arrive, they start chanting, Dan White was a cop, Dan White was a cop, Dan White was a cop. A few days later, I'm at Cleve Jones' apartment picking up flyers for a street party to honor Harvey's birthday when the phone rings. 
The same cop is back on the street, Cleve barks into the phone. You just tell him, Cleve says. If that guy is still on the beat, there could be trouble. A lot of trouble. Real trouble. Him was Harry Britt. The verdict is delivered on May 21 at 5.38 p.m. The loaded gun, the sneaking in through the basement, the execution-style shots to the head. Surely this is murder and a life sentence, if not the gas chamber. No, no it isn't. It's just a little manslaughter. Dan White is sentenced to seven years. He'll serve five and then he'll commit suicide. As the date approached, I mean, we did know ahead of time that there'd be a verdict soon. And so necessarily there was preparation for the possibility of a bad verdict. You had to do that. Uh, And on the board, Diane didn't really include me in, in her preparations. Diane lived in horror of riots on her watch. Just, no. She was big on crowd control. And so on that day, it was on a Monday, there was a board meeting. So everybody was at City Hall. Mayor was there, the whole board was there. And uh, the basement was just filled with cops. This is before Ferdy came in. And that wasn't because they knew something that we didn't know, I don't believe. It's just that Diane was just so, so focused on, you know. And um, It felt like there was a lot of tension on the street. I think that's very possible. See, I, I had been a street person, but I wasn't anymore. So where were you when you heard the verdict? I was at City Hall. Um... Where was I physically? I think I was in a board meeting. Board meeting started at 2 o'clock. Everybody came in in the late afternoon, I think, didn't it? So I was in the chambers of City Hall, and somebody called me outside. And I went and talked to the mayor. We adjourned the board meeting very quickly. Recorded live on the streets by Fruit Punch Gay Radio Show on May 21st, 1979. I worked in Harvey's office. And I was there the day that that happened. And I share what you all feel tonight, too. And we're going to show the rest of the city what we feel. What I'd like to suggest that we here do now in the meantime is get the rest of our sisters and brothers that are in this neighborhood to join with us. I think today is a, a really terrible day for the gay people of San Francisco. And I'd like to see us move down to 18th Street and start it from there and get the people out of the bars and into the streets. So maybe we can start moving down. Within an hour, a sullen crowd appears at the steps of City Hall while a march that had started at Castro Street is making its way down Market. Gay people! Fight that! 
just now. I didn't know that what happened until just now. Okay, he was found. Uh, have you heard that he was found guilty of manslaughter on both accounts? Yes. Any reaction to that? I'm stunned. Can you tell me what your sign says? It says, what if it were Dan Black? And that means that if it were a black man, that man wouldn't, they, the jury never would have even deliberated. He would have been hung right away. We want justice. We want justice. We want justice. We Walking up Polk, arriving at Grove, right before we enter the Civic Center Plaza, the chant is... Harry and I witnessed that night from different perspectives. I was on the street, throwing rocks and setting fires at City Hall. Harry is an elected official. The mayor and chief of police expect him to keep his community under control. The crowd has assembled. Candles are being lit. Posters are held on high. The street, the steps of City Hall, the street in front of it, back to the reflecting fountain filled well over 5,000 people, I would estimate, at this moment. And the chant again builds. I participated in the, in the march. Was it still light? I'm not sure it was still light. I got there, um, okay. and it was, it was darkish. It was totally, uh, it was evening. The gathering was, had gotten there, and it was just beginning to be evening, yeah. Um, I participated in the march. I didn't go home, but I, I, I left City Hall and went down to, you know, I, I took in maybe the last third of the march, uh, just because I wanted a feel of what to expect from the crowd. And uh, the march itself wasn't all that unruly. There were just chants and stuff, but nobody was throwing bricks at anybody. Um, the events on the steps of City Hall, I don't know what to say about that. It was a bad night. I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Police have arrived at City Hall, at the doors of City Hall. They've got riot squad gear on. There's pushing and shoving going on. We're right here at the doors of City Hall. The police are pushing people off the steps. I remember uh, you trying at one point to lead everyone away. It's march on Hall of Justice. No, I, I was not proud of what... I don't remember saying that, but I'm not saying I didn't say it. I, I didn't know what to do, frankly. Uh, and I don't think anybody else did either. We, Maybe it was wrong of me, but it wasn't just me, but... People like Bill Krause and Chris Perry, even I think Hank Wilson, 
I'm not sure about Hank. I guess the, the one thing we felt we had control of that we wanted to do was prevent the people on the steps from breaking the glass windows of City Hall. Maybe that doesn't seem important historically, but they were awfully nice windows and we didn't want that responsibility, frankly. So we formed, and practically every person who would have been considered a leader in the gay political community was there. It was not just Harvey's people. We lined up across the steps facing the crowd. Sally Gearhart. The next speaker, Amber Hallibau, was the most well-received of all those who spoke at the Civic Center Monday night. What do you think of what's going on right now, sir? I think they should burn down the whole place. You know, here I may have more, I may know more than you. I, I doubt Because I, I, doubt I arrived that there and it was twilight and they were just beginning to try to do damage to the doorways, to pull bar, bars off and mm -hmm. to use the glass. I remember that just happening. And I was aware that it was a lot of street people who had come down from Polk and the tender Very line. young people. The grading in front of City Hall continues to get torn down. For a long time, uh, there was just the focus at the, at, at the stairs, and just a few people were, were doing things there. So mm -hmm. I was aware of the mixed nature. As the night grew on, it became more and more gay. And then finally, I was there with Richard, at the first part of the evening, I was there with Richard Boxer, who was the founder of Pacific Center. Mm -hmm. And we had been good friends, uh, and he was a little high and whatever. 
we kind of hung around together. And at one point, we said to each other, you know, this is ridiculous. This is not going anywhere. We were pro-riot, I guess I should say, by the way. I don't have a problem. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's just not, these sissies, it's not going anywhere. We've got to do something. We bucked up our courage. We found rocks. We tried to throw them at other parts. It's your fault. You, you've heard the story. Hmm. Other parts of the building. And we kind of would throw and hide, and that didn't start anything. And um, at one point, <clears throat> there used to be a line of newspaper vending machines. Yeah. I pushed one over. Somebody else pushed one over. They all got pushed over. Out came the newspapers. They became fires. And all of a sudden, it did start to spread. And there's one person who could, who could, uh, who could verify this story. You just Maybe. Moved, you moved up a little higher in my pantheon of gods. The, well, there's one person who could... Who, months later, Carol Migdon's ex-husband, Leonard, Leonard uh, Migdon, Never knew. was a lawyer with, and a volunteer with the ACLU, and he was there observing that night. They had, I don't know if I had met him before or not, but I knew they had a good relationship, even though they were. And he came up to me months later and said, you know, when you pushed over those newspaper vending machines, that really changed it. Oh. Uh, and then that's when... Uh, the lesbians broke in downstairs and tried to set the computers on fire. And See, I didn't even know about that. Uh, then I, I, and then somewhere around in there, um, I remembered the line being formed. And I wasn't very sympathetic to the line. And I saw not only the nice people that you mentioned that we love, but Leonard Matlovich and a few other Toklas types He wasn't well. there by intervention, by invitation. But we felt, or I felt, that there was a moment when the stairs step part of it was past the crisis. And then, and I still remember this with a lot of anger, then the cops charged the steps. Yes, I saw that. And they came in from the north, yep. and they came in kind of like this, very quick. Yeah, out of nowhere. They certainly didn't say anything to me ahead of time. The people who have provided the human chain. It has now broken loose. Cops are now bashing heads of the people, of indeed the people who had formed the human chain, who to protect City Hall are now getting bashed by police. The people, the people who had been protecting City Hall are now getting dragged away by police. The police are now moving out into the crowd, moving out into the crowd and just flailing about. And that, at that point, we all said, "Fuck you!" <laughs> you know, and there, there was no—I was no longer willing to play any kind of a ameliorative uh, role in anything, and neither was anybody else. I thought the behavior of the cops was stupid, whether it was homophobic or not. I don't know. Uh, now, I know there was some homophobic behavior by the cops later than that. Now, you know, Diane had her troops in the basement. Hundreds, dozens of them. That basement. Why, we, on the street, what we couldn't understand is why was it so long before the cops came in? And they, they did that charge and retreated. They did other times they came in and retreated. And we thought, why are we getting away with this? I don't know, but I suspect that the mayor really didn't want to do that. I don't. She really hated confrontation, and 
and things were going kind of okay. I don't think the burning of the cars had started yet. And also, she wasn't in a position. She was up in her office, directly above, directly above the steps. She couldn't. Uh, I I I, I can't think. I can't imagine, well, I guess I can, but the, the cops should not have charged the steps without the mayor's permission. And I suspect she didn't give it to them. Now, whether she gave it to them ultimately or not, I never discussed it with her. Um, but I know they charged the steps, and I know it wasn't professional. And and then I know the glass did get broken. Yeah. I mean, you I mean, were so clearly trying to protect that. Oh, uh, yeah, everybody was. So after that happened, do you leave the scene, or? I don't remember exactly what I did immediately after that. I left the stairs, the steps. I think I went inside. Have you seen them? Are they in trouble? I don't know about that. I'm going to have to go and try to deal with the situation. I don't even remember immediately what I did, but I know at some point, sort of 10-ish, 10 o'clock at night, I went out into Civic Center Plaza and saw homophobic behavior by the cops. There was a woman in a toll booth, or a phone booth, that was getting beaten. They were chasing people and chasing people that weren't able to run very fast. And the people jumping around in the cars, and again, I wasn't so sure they were gay people either. And that's the part I never, never would want to say publicly, because to me, this was a gay riot. I wanted to be a gay riot, I'm not trying to be. It, well, for what, it was. Uh, and I, I was very much on the ground. When the, when the cops finally charged, I was with, at that point, another friend, standing on top of whatever that big cement block thing is that's kind of near, that's on Civic Center, covers some kind of utilities or yeah. ventilant. We were standing there, and I remember thinking, the cops are charging. Looks like they'll just go around us. So. No, let's run. <laughs> that was a good yeah. idea. <laughs> now, of course, what they did was ensure that the riot spread far and wide into the Tenderloin and other areas. Running back, the police have literally beaten the crowd. Gay people are carrying gay people away who have been hurt and hit as the police have moved through. The police moved into a group of people who were sitting down and not moving and just clubbed away and they realized that obviously our nonviolent not moving was not going to work. Gay people proceeded to run and now pretty much there's a there's a 15 foot distance between us and the line of, of police who are coming down. You can hear their voices. Finally they're getting their chance. They can, you can obviously see to speak back and here they are. I felt that the vandalism was not that great, all things considered, uh, in terms of what could go on. There was a lot of conscious directing of targets at banks and symbolic. So, so you went down to the Tenderloin? Yeah, I went to the Tenderloin through windows through Hibernia Bank. Man, you're but responsible for the whole thing. I'm impressed. There was a grand jury, but we'll get on to that. Oh, I know about the grand yeah. jury. But uh, so that, 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 that was on they the ground. They blamed me for the riots. Oh yeah, well we'll talk about that. So I know that I know gay people who did.
did cop cars, and maybe some of them were. Okay, well, I'm, I'm there really was a glad point. to hear that, because I've never talked about that. There was a point, and Richard was in a picture of the paper, we're trying to turn over a cop car that's parked right in front. And I'm looking at it and going, there's a rifle right there, my God. <laughs> Nobody went for the rifle. Nobody even got close to trying or thinking about that. So just there was a lot of intentionality about I felt. Okay, see, I'm glad. Because I, I, I was not in a position oh. to get that kind of a, of a view oh, of No, was it happening. wasn't. Okay, so I was dispersed, part of the dispersal. Okay. Well, I wasn't dispersed, but about 11 o'clock, almost exactly 11 o'clock, I was in the Civic Center Plaza checking things out, and it seemed like things were really not happening much anymore. Right. So... I walked over to Channel 7, which at that time was on Golden Gate near the, the Y, because I felt somebody needed to say something, and it looked like it was in my job description more than anybody else's. And they knew me, of course. Uh, Van Amberg was the, you remember, uh, homophobic piece of shit was their main anchor guy. I walked over to Channel 7, just because it was the closest, uh, the closest, uh, TV station, <clears throat> and uh, the 11 o'clock news was on the air, so I just walked in, and I, they recognized me and said, come on up here, and Van Amberg started interviewing me, and kept saying, wanting me to apologize, and don't you, th you know, terrible about Dan White, but isn't it, don't you feel like your community should be more, you know, not do this kind of thing. And I just kept saying, we're not going to apologize. And I thought I was fairly articulate, and particularly given the evening's events that had not prepared me for a media star. But I was very good about, I felt good about my appearance and my no apologies posture. And some people picked up on that. And there was even a little yes. poetry book, a little book of poetry came out with that title. Uh, but that's not- a great poster here too. The story's not over yet. <laughs> yeah. I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, just from the board meeting, I would have been exhausted. Not when it got cut short, at least by a little bit. I was with Steve Savage. You know Steve's name, gay photographer. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were very good friends at that point in time. Uh, you know, he was following me around, taking my pictures. I so I thought, you know, we might as well get to know each other. Besides, <laughs> I thought he was quite attractive. And uh, he, uh, we went, he and I went to my house. As we got to about uh, Noe Street on Market, and maybe, maybe a little before Noe Street, we saw these cops in Market Street in rows. And um, I didn't understand. I didn't know anything about looting and any of that. I thought things. I, don't know, I thought the worst was over. First, I went to 18th and Castro, and Chief uh, uh, Captain uh, Jeffries, who was captain of Mission Station, who was a not a good guy. Yeah. Captain Jeffries was there because he was in in charge. He was responsible for you know that part of the okay. town. Yeah. 
Uh, we were in Mission Station. There were lots of cops in the street in their Darth Vader outfits. There were gay people on the streets, and I suspect many of them were people who had been in the bars and may not have even had a clue what had been going on at City Hall. I don't know. And then I got down to, um, and I confronted Chief uh, uh, Captain Jeffries, Jeffries, and and said, "Look, what, what, you know, get these people out of here. This could be a dangerous situation. You know, you got people been drinking. You got cops that are, you know." quite capable of doing behaving I said you know you shouldn't be here and and I and he challenged me and I said look you got to remember that you work for me I don't work for you and we had a real kind of a nastiness then I went down to Castro and 18th and there was a some stuff happening I was down there there were a lot of inebriated gay folk there and they were sort of blocking the street and of course, the, the traffic wasn't going to get through anyway with all the cops. And um, I, I sort of screamed, "Look, this is ridiculous! We're going to get the—I'll get these cops out of here. You know, just give me a minute, and I'll, I'll take care of it." And and I said, "These cops have no business on the street." And for the rest of my political life, everybody who ran against me said, Harry Britt believes that police should not be on the street. Not that particular street at that moment in time, but any street. And I had to live with that. It really pissed me off. Because we, by then, we had lesbian cops, and those were perfectly good people to have on the street. So I hurried. That's when, that's when I went back to see Chief Gain at 17th Mark. And I told him that this was unacceptable, that there was, there was a dangerous situation and somebody was going to be killed and it was going to be his fault. And then I went home, which is like a, a block, a long block along from Market Tanoi. I went home and I called the mayor, who was in her office. And I told her that I had just been on Castro Street and that it was a very dangerous situation, that the cops were totally responsible that they had to get out of there before someone was killed. And her eternal, never-to-be-forgotten answer to me was, and I've never, I'm saying this on the tape, I never have said this in public, but Harry, there's looting on Larkin Street. <laughs> and that wasn't the right answer. <laughs> We were burning tires at Conan Cavill. Yeah, and, and, and I'm sure there may have been, you know, droughts in Somalia, but what does yeah. that have to do with pastors? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I said, look, then send the cops to Larkin Street, but get them out of there because somebody's going to be killed, and I'm telling you. I then walked back, and before I got to Castro Street, the cops were leaving. So I'm pretty sure Diane made the call. I can't imagine any other thing that could have happened was but that Diane made the call to, to gain our Jeffries. <laughs> but I can't prove it. But they weren't in a mood to leave before I left no. them the first time. Well, um, now I thought then everything was over. Because the, the, the cops were retreating down Market Street and the gay people were following them. But they didn't seem like they were going to attack them. It was kind of a we won kind of a thing. So I went back home and went to bed. 
I have never had any clue about Elephant Walk. My friend and I, after we fanned out into the Tenderloin, came back around up to Market Street around the McDonald's. And that was when we became aware that there were cops from other cities. Yeah, that's A lot bad. of other cities all over the place. And uh, That's bad. That's we, sad. Uh, either walked or took the train up to Castro Street, thinking that we're going to unwind now and debrief mm -hmm. and all that. And we went into, I think it was called Uncle Bert's, a bar on 18th, a little east of Castro. We're in there drinking beers, and somebody comes in and says, the cops are here. What do you mean, the <laughs> cops are here? So, no, you said that the people didn't know what happened. Well, we did. Okay. We came out onto the I've street. Met some of them probably didn't know. And then we're, we were standing on that corner uh, where the History Society, where the film shop, yeah. photo shop used to be, right on that corner. Where Lenin and Matt and lived. I'm, I'm insane. I'm like, hold me back. Insane. I was like, get the fuck out of here. You should have been. They I, don't know, I don't know how long we were there. But I remember that there, was a cam there were camera lights. We watched the cops periodically chase people down and beat them up in front of the camera lights. I didn't see that. Then we, at one point I saw you come in. I didn't stick around. I had okay, work I, to do. But I saw you come in, literally putting yourself between the cops and the people. With some, a couple other people, you, you came as a group with your arms around each other. I just had Steve with me. Somebody may have got Somebody. caught me up with me at Castle. I, I thought it was, I mean, it, it was scary because it was like, you're putting yourself between, you, you, you look like, you look scared. So, you came and I went. wasn't scared, I was just like, what the fuck? Pissed. <laughs> but that was an, imp I was impressed. And you came and went, and then the elephant walk happened. I'm standing at Castro in 18th with my friend Andy, Kitty corner from the elephant walk bar, now called Harvey's. It has full plate glass windows, and it's crammed with bystanders trying to escape the police who are chasing people down and beating them with their nightsticks. Suddenly, a line of helmeted cops storm into the bar, swinging their batons, smashing bottles and glasses, crushing heads. It lasts for maybe 15 minutes. It felt like an hour. I have never gotten that image out of my mind. They chased people back into the bar where we thought we were safe, and uh, then they just come storming through here. You know, it's uh, it's like Nazi stormtroopers. Uh, we well, they, they hassled people, beat up people in the bar, smashed up the bar, yes. smashed up, uh, uh, turned over all the tables. I'm sticking my microphone through the broken window, the front door. That was was broken by the police. Yeah. Were you in the Were you in the bar when? Yes, I was. We were sitting at the same table. Honey, come over here. We were all sitting at the same table, relaxed, having a cocktail. I just ordered around. The police bashed through every one of these windows, billy clubbing everybody through that small little back door in the rear, saying, "Get out, go home, queers." This woman get off the comes streets. up to me and kicks me in the That's ribs, telling me to get your fucking ass out. That's what she said. A big woman police. 
they okay. were billy clubbing people all the way out through the back door, and there was no way all these people could get through that tiny back door. Once they came in, the there was no stopping them. I was, I was hit in the chest the by Billy When Club. they finally got us out Friends the back door, the back, they the got into formation and marched saying, go home faggots, go home faggots. Okay, and that was that. like I was always mind-boggling thing to see. And, um, and then I'm not sure, except the next thing I remember is the retreat. They're going up step by step, and we're in their face mm -hmm. all the way. They get up to the top. Dear friend Andy sees one of his street buddies, gets a knife, and does one of the tires in the cop car. So our last fillet was to see five fat old cops hobbling off with a flat tire. On the, it was a very satisfying kind of Taxpayers have to pay for those things, you know. Moment. But it was extremely scary. And it I, was scary. Uh, That's when I was worried about death. Not mine. Yeah. But I, you'd see that combination of cops and angry people whose heroes, and plus some alcohol. Yeah, sure, sure. It becomes known as the White Knight Riot. More than 100 protesters, many of them women, and 65 police are injured. And Civic Center Plaza is lit up with the flames of 14 burning police cars. My friend Richard ends up at an emergency room where victims from the Elephant Walk are brought in. Dozens of bruised and bleeding people. Whenever a cop walks by, they erupt in curses. Fucking pigs, fucking pigs. Harry's statement to the TV cameras is broadcast across the country. Here's what he said. Harvey Milk's people do not have anything to apologize for. Now the society is going to have to deal with us, not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. We're not going to put up with the Dan Whites anymore. The next day, a police officer files charges against Harry for inciting the riot. The editorials question his fitness for office. A grand jury is convened, and Harry and others are called in for questioning. But no one is ever held accountable for the police riot at the Elephant Walk. The day after the White Knight Riots. Uh, today would have been um, Harvey Milk's birthday. Uh, it's made a much more difficult day because of the circumstances, uh, because of the verdict coming in, and because of the profound disagreement that many of us have with that verdict. And citizenry of our city um, has a whole spectrum of feelings and looks to express these feelings in a myriad of different ways. Um, some of them acceptable and some of them not acceptable. We had a setback, but it's just a setback last night. And we're going to do everything we possibly can to see that those circumstances don't happen again. And that today is observed as a day of memoriam, a day of rededication, uh, a day when once again as this city sweeps up the glass and puts itself back together again, we can begin to think and plan for the future. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Harvey. Happy birthday to you. Our next speaker, Bob Ross. We had a very good meeting this morning with the mayor, and we pulled a Harvey Milk. And what we did was we made the allegations. And for the first time in the history of the city, the mayor has ordered a full-scale investigation into the police harassment and brutality of last night. Sally Gerhardt. Dear Harvey, there's no way that I'll apologize for what happened in this city of yours last night. You've always known... You've always known, perhaps better than I, and maybe I'm beginning to learn it too, that unless a movement moves in the streets, there will be no ear that will hear us. Until we display an ungovernable rage at injustices, we will not even get the attention of a system that holds us down. The question now is, is that all there is? Good. So I begin to see that we begin to see that our lot is not just to stand alone, but to gain the support and to support the causes of the majority of the people in this country who, like us, do not fit the masculine mold or the masculine ideology, who are too dark, too female, too crippled, too old, too poor, or too loving. It's my job to introduce him right now. Introducing Harry Britt. Thank you. Harvey Milk would be terribly, terribly proud of his people tonight. And I sure as hell don't have to tell you that Harvey Milk's people do not have a damn thing to apologize to anybody for ever. Tonight, 15,000 people have gathered to demonstrate with their love that the spirit of Harvey Milk will always be alive in our city. Yesterday was a tough one. But as I've talked to so many of you today, and received so many wonderful calls from you and from gay people and from non-gay people all over the United States. It seems to me that something terribly important happened yesterday, that somehow we turned a corner yesterday, and that if Harvey Milk is listening somewhere, he knows that the gay movement has moved forward a great step because of what happened yesterday. Let no one believe that the step that we have taken is a step from nonviolence to violence. We have suffered too much for the hands of violent people ever to go down that road. But let us say 
that never again will our people ever stand by and let Dan White's people rule the day. Let us say with our new strength that we are tired of dealing with pigs and that from now on, the people who would follow the spirit of Dan White are going to have to deal with us. Harry's no-apology stance certainly doesn't earn him friends in the mayor's office, or the police department, or the political establishment. But it wins him credibility on the street. Posters and t-shirts with no-apologies emblazoned over burning cop cars become a thing. Today it looks like the gay movement is taking the path of many other minority movements of the 1960s, but where that path goes next is anybody's guess. Um, our city, gay people, we have a history of coming from other places throughout the country, and so I think that I think that Harvey himself would would put it in the total perspective that violence against gay people, Harvey's death was nothing new. I think more people will think about why 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 have gay people migrated to San Francisco. Some people say this will hurt us politically. There'll be a backlash against us. What do you think? They were beating us up before last night. You know, they were causing violence. It's been a rocky start, to say the least. In his first six months in office, Harry alienates the women's community, infuriates the police chief, defies the mayor who appointed him, snubs the gay business people, and gets blamed for inciting the White Knight riots. In a few months, his term will expire, and he'll have to run for office. And there are reports that Diane is looking for someone to run against him. There were many, many times when I had to go into situations where the other persons in the room were saying, okay, this guy's homosexual, what do we do with that? What do we call him? What to be careful not to say? Uh, how can we get rid of him? The stress takes its toll. David Weissman, one of his aides, sees Harry on more than one occasion unload on people who approach him on the street leaving David to spend the next day on the phone mending fences. But Harry hunkers down and begins to put Harvey's politics of queer power to the test. Next week, Episode 4, The Number One Queen. I'm from KPFA, you know what I would like Radio. To, you know, I'd like to say, I think those jurors ought to be tried. I think if it was me, if I was have been, uh, I say I, I have a lot of frustrations too. I can't find a job. If I went around there and shot up a couple of people just to do something like because I was angry at them, you think they'd let me out of there? I'd be in there till doomsday if I didn't meet the chair first. And you tell them, whoever they are, I hope they have nice, long, sleepless nights forever. 
Give Em Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And for bonus episodes and lots of queer history deep dives, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month and get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including the new bonus podcast, The White Knight Riot Interviews. I'm talking to rioters who were there on the street about why they did what they did and how they feel about it today. Were you hoping for a riot? Well, there were many of us who were, like, not opposed to the idea, but we knew that we were so fucking outgunned. On tomorrow's bonus episode, I'm chatting with one of my absolute favorite fags on the planet, Joey Kane. Joey has been such a fantastic supporter of Queer Serial since the early days, and he was there at the White Knight Riots, too. His perspective on the whole matter is much different than any other we've heard so far, and he was one of the rioters shattering bank windows. And so I'm at my friend uh, Jane's house, and we're watching TV, and a news flash comes on that there's a riot starting down in Civic Center where this march had ended up. And we all looked at each other, and we said, oh, it's one of those things, because these happened periodically. That'll be over in the next 20 minutes, because usually the cops pour in, and it doesn't really expand. And then, like, another 20 minutes later, it said, oh, the riot is escalating. And we looked at each other, and I ran out of the house and jumped on the Muni. And I literally stepped off the bus and came up and helped them lift this up and throw it through the window. Fabulous. We were definitely yelling, you know, come out of the bars, come out of the bars. You know, the police are attacking our neighborhood. Listen to that interview tomorrow on Infamous Crimes, the White Knight Riot interviews, only on my Patreon. I remember vividly the the individual motorcycles every now and then that were just in flames. Also on my Patreon, you can listen to Mattachino Randy Wicker's historic and bizarre 1960s New York radio show. You can dive into the papers Randy preserved for his longtime roommate Marsha P. Johnson and find all sorts of homo history and trans history odds and ends. There's a link in the episode notes to patreon.com slash queer serial. Thanks for your support, preserving and sharing queer history. An elected politician saying I'm not going to apologize because my community is burning down City Hall was like mind-blowing. I had never... Hey, girly. Hey, they. <laughs> I have some follow-up questions. Okay. What sort of things were you doing to support Anne Cronenberg when it looked like she might get Harvey's seat? Sure. There was a petition campaign, and um, uh, there was a flyer. I, I, I still have it, but I, I cut out the picture of Anne in it next to Harvey and, and taped it onto a button. Uh-huh. And I had a clipboard. I stood in front of Safeway and Market Street and collected signatures and probably went around in other places and flyers and stuff like that. Wow. I love your homemade button. That's fantastic. <laughs> you and Brad wrote a zine that ran a few issues called Vortex, a Journal of New Vision, mm. including a lengthy essay about your point of view during the White Knight Riot. Mm-hmm. And I put a link in the episode notes so the folks at home can read that. Would you mind reading this small portion? Sure. And you should note that it was um, uh, published under a pseudonym. Yes. Of Stephen Marks. Um, mm. Because there's still, it was a grand jury and people are being called in. And you're incriminating yourself in this statement that you're about to read. <laughs> when I first ran into Robert, pseudonym, uh, who's actually R- uh, Richard Boxer, uh, founder of the Pacific Center. Oh. 
When I first ran into Robert, I had been wandering around the crowd, never standing still, always looking for the best vantage point, the best people to stand near. Sometimes chants coming up of no more violence, no more violence. But then something would break, another window at the doors of City Hall, and others would clap and cheer. I wanted to stand only near people who cheered at the crashing. I didn't want to think about the ones chanting against violence. What violence? Where are these people with their chants when gay people get beaten up when Harvey was assassinated? I was somehow afraid and too angry at the same time. But there was no place, no best place to be. How could I let out what I was feeling? More than just clapping when a window broke. I ran into Robert then. He told me he heard about it on the radio. It had been officially declared a riot. But it was just this aimless gathering, oppressive people at the doors of City Hall, watching, waiting, not leaving, wanting something to happen. And the thoughts in my head now, not about Dan White or Harvey Milk or the verdict or even my own rage, it's just the anxiety. I have to do something. I had reached this logical, intellectual conclusion that something must happen here, and I felt a compulsion to take action, to be more than a bystander. So you wrote that, or you published it in Vortex in 1980, and since many people have confirmed that you were the person that tipped with setting, tipped the riot a bit, had a hand in tipping the riot a bit by setting those newspaper stands on fire, how do you feel about your position in history? I have different feelings about that now. It made so much sense. I mean, the emotions made so much sense at that night to do those things after everything. To um, just say, I don't give a fuck about this system. I have no stake in it. City Hall means nothing to me. Um, But in reflecting on demonstrations that turned into a uh, raucous or riot direction in recent years. Um, I was thinking about it at the January 6th, watching the people rushing at the Capitol Hill cops. And then I thought about that night at the stairs. What if we had actually broken the windows. I mean, there were a lot of bars to get off. It wouldn't really have happened that we could have actually gotten in. But there was maybe 12 cops standing there. What would we have done? Would we have attacked them? Mm, Not me, but there are some people there who probably would have. Um, There was a point where people were trying to overturn a cop car. It's actually almost possible. And I was watching them, and I looked in, and I saw a rifle. Um, Now, nobody took it. So, I I don't, I feel, I have mixed feelings uh, about rioting. That was a righteous riot, though. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. People were hurt, especially on the side of those who are protesting. Um... When you've seen things like, um, in history, like the Watts riots or the Stonewall riots or, or even like downtown Chicago in 2020, do you, do you feel that there is any, that there are pros and cons for riots 
out of things like that for demonstrating against the city? I do. Uh, what's different now since the 1979 riot is the potential for um, deadly violence is much higher. Mm-hmm. And, and guns is much higher. Yes. So I just kind of feel like, like uh, let's not go there. Uh, when the sun starts to go down, go home. Actions at night are really, it, it's, it's the cops could attack you, the right wing could attack you. Got to keep a lid uh, and, and choose and have raucous and loud and noisy. Um, but we got to take care of ourselves. Yes. Last summer I was rushing home at sunset because the Proud Boys were driving through Chicago looking for people. Big thanks to our fabulous sponsors. The Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco Public Library. You got it. (laughs) Oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson with big hugs. And an anonymous longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Brayton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute. Rachel Maddow is a, a a lesbian from from Berkeley who used to be a member of Act Up, and I don't know how she got to be, but she's on MSNBC um, twice a day for an hour. Well, that's I think I can say safely she is the most respected political commentator on the tube. Period. I can't think of who else would even compete for that. She's fresh. She's she's got you know she's got a wonderful smile. She's but but her politics are extraordinary, way better than anybody else on the tube. I, I'm I am I just adore Rachel.